It is the word of God, but it was also my choice to preach this text. Ezekiel 16, 15 through 34. Receive this with faith, with love. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore. Because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them, Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. After all your wickedness. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretch out my hand against you and diminish your allotted portion and deliver you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whorings also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this, You are not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, these deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet, you are not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. I might not know who you truly are, but Google does. At least that's the argument of Seth Stephens Davidovitz 
in his 2017 book, Everybody Lies. Big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us all about who we really are. In this book, Davidovitz, after spending years looking at data from Google and other social media platforms and trying to make sense of that data, claims that comparing what people post on their social media platforms and what they ask Google, two different things, reveals a lot about them. That's, of course, where the book's title comes from. He says, everybody lies because what people say publicly in front of their virtual peers is very different from what they privately ask Google. One terrifying example Davidovitz provides in the book is about wives describing their husbands. According to his findings on Facebook, publicly, the most common ways wives finish the phrase, my husband is, are the best, my best friend, amazing, the greatest, and so cute. Now, and this is an exercise you can do later at home, don't do it during the sermon, you can go to Google and you can type, my husband is and wait to see how he completes, which are the most common ways people are completing that sentence. I tried it just this week, and the top five results are jobless, what should I do? Always angry, miserable, my best friend, and depressed. And if you turn that into a question, because I don't think it makes a lot of sense to go to Google and just say to him, my friend, my husband is my best friend. You probably are asking something. If you do that, it gets even worse. If you go to Google and type in, why is my husband, dot, 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 you will get so mean to me, so angry, always mad at me. Other common entries are yelling at me, so selfish and mean to my son. So when everyone is looking, my husband is awesome, cute, my best friend. When I'm desperate at night looking for answers and I can only think of Google, he is selfish, mean, and angry. Apparently, indeed, everybody lies. The thing is, and that's one of his arguments, since no one knows what we are looking for when we ask Google about our problems, we as people tend to feel more at ease to pull, pour out our hearts into that search box and ask it our most pressing questions, in turn revealing our needs, our anguishes, and our hearts. So again, I might not know who you truly are, but Google seems to, which is precisely what our text tonight is all about. Tonight we continue our journey through the grueling parable of Jerusalem, God's bride, in Ezekiel 16. Tonight the Holy Spirit will use his sharp, double-edged sword to pierce the division of our souls and spirits to discern our thoughts and intentions 
of the heart, as Hebrew says, regarding God, our husband. Tonight, the Spirit of God will lay our hearts bare in front of us so then He can wash and cleanse us as we saw last week. And as I said last week, we need it to get worse before it gets better. Today it gets worse. But that means that we will see today that our restless, sinful hearts will try anything to find the rest we can only find in Jesus. That's what I believe is the main point of our text tonight. Our restless, sinful hearts will try anything to find the rest we can only find in Jesus. We'll see that in three points this evening. And the first one is, the truth is we sin because we trust too much in ourselves. Truth is we sin because we trust too much in ourselves. We see that in verses 15 through 22. As we began talking last week in Ezekiel 16, God is confronting his people in exile with their true nature. You see, they thought everything was going well for them as a people, as a nation, because they had spent the last centuries posting their love for Yahweh, the God of the covenant, on their metaphorical social media. They thought they were better than other nations surrounding them because they had a promised land, the temple, the ark, the covenant. They had all the external attributes of a superior land, of a superior people, so they thought. Yet in real life, as we have seen in Ezekiel 8 through 12 a couple months ago, when they thought no one was looking, they were worshiping all sorts of pagan gods in search of comfort and well-being. And now God begins then chapter 16. Remember in verse 2 we read last week, telling Ezekiel to make known to Jerusalem her abominations. I will make public what they think is hidden. He will bring to light what they thought was a secret in the dark. And that's why our text begins tonight in verse 15 with a contrast. Yet, but, however, nevertheless, after all that God had done to save them from certain death, Jerusalem trusted in her beauty. A beauty that the text is quickly quick to add, to add a beauty that was given to her by God. Quote, enamored with what they had become, God's people forgot where they came from, says one commentator. Verse 22 makes that clear when it says that she had forgotten the days of her youth, forgot where she came from when God saved her, when she was still a baby, wallowing in blood, waiting to die. She became, as our text says, a prostitute offering her God-given good gifts to any passerby. Four times we read that Jerusalem took what God had given her, the same things we read about last week, and bestowed on her metaphorical lovers. We've seen again, chapters 8 through 12, Ezekiel had that vision of the temple and all that weird 
pagan, absurd rituals happening inside the dwelling of God with his people as they offered incense and nonsense to other gods. Jerusalem was using the gold, the precious stones, the fine linen and silk that adorned her husband's house to worship weird and foreign gods and idols. At this point, you realize that Hosea's, the other prophet, famous imagery of the adulterous woman to represent God's people and their idolatry seems to be not strong enough. Ezekiel pushes the metaphor even further and goes straight to the idea of prostitution. Jerusalem is not merely betraying her husband. She is throwing herself upon any passerby. It brings me no joy to tell you that the expression, you lavished your whorings on any passerby in verse 15, means literally in the original, you spread your legs for any passerby. And if that's not depressing enough, verses 10 to 22 say that Jerusalem offered her daughters and sons as sacrifices to these pagan gods. And true and unfortunately, the Old Testament indeed mentions child sacrifice as a common practice among the old pagan nations that surrounded Israel. And then at the end of the period that led to the exile, God's people were involved in these horrible practices. This is where the metaphor mixed with reality because they were, this was not just a metaphor, they were sacrificing children to pagan gods. What an irony. When we consider where Jerusalem started at the beginning of the chapter, a baby that was abandoned, being rescued by God. This is what it means not to remember where you come from. And probably the saddest thing I have to say tonight is that the idea of an ancient people who practiced child sacrifice is probably the easiest part of this text to relate to our current events Because we see we as humanity, we think we are so evolved. This is a nation thing, old thing. Yet, right now, we are still pouring money, time, and political efforts into systems that legally murder around one million babies per year just in this country. This is the gut-wrenching reality of the stacks before us tonight. We will do anything as a humanity to preserve our comfort, even if it means a million abortions per year. God gave us an almost infinite variety of natural resources, brilliant minds, an extraordinary body to protect, to guard, and cultivate this garden that we call planet Earth. Yet we are all squandering it all and the altar of individual, individual, individual choices. Like Israel in Ezekiel's time, we think that we know how to improve, how to get better, how to live better lives. 
We think that if we think hard enough, we will find all the good ways to live a good life. We don't need God telling us how to live. Yet, as I've said many times before, our best thinking God is here, revolting against God, burning up all his good gifts, killing each other with assault weapons and our babies with scalpels, and then wondering why our young ones struggle so much with mental health these days. And then it gets worse. We'll see in our second point tonight that the truth is we sin because we do not trust in God, our Savior. Second thing we need to see from our text tonight, the truth is we sin because we do not trust in God, our Savior. We see that in verses 23 through 29. It's interesting in this first verse of 23 how God almost seems surprised at how much it actually gets worse. Because in verse 23, Ezekiel proceeds his accusation charges against Jerusalem, and he says, after all your wickedness, and then he stops and interjects in horror, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. Because after describing in the first section their religious, ritualistic prostitution, Ezekiel goes on to explain, still using the language and imagery, their abominations in the political realm. Not only did they want comfort, but they also wanted power. So they went after more potent lovers. Verse 26, they sought the Egyptians of all people, the Egyptians, their previous captors. They ran to the Egyptians when the Babylonians threatened to invade. Verse 27, they fell to the Philistines. And even that wicked people were embarrassed of how perverse Jerusalem had become. The people of Goliath were ashamed of David's people's lewd behavior. Can you imagine that? Verse 28, they sought the protection of the Assyrians, the people who ended up, ironically, exiling and exterminating the northern kingdom of Israel. And then finally, verse 29, you multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this, you were not satisfied. The land of Chaldea, of course, is Babylon. Go home later and read Isaiah 39 when the old prophets codes their king for showing all the military secrets of Judah, thinking they were impressing the Babylonians if they saw all our gold. The result of that move is right here in the book of Ezekiel, a book of people who are exiled, who had lost everything in the hand of the Babylonians. So after Jerusalem spread her legs south to Egypt, east to Philistia, north to Assyria, and west to Babylon, it's no wonder why some can feel a chill down their spine when they read in verse 29 that even with this, you were not satisfied. 
If there were any more directions to go to, Jerusalem would have gone. The text is saying too much was not enough for a young Jerusalem, God's bride. And at this point, I believe it's fair to ask, how could they have forgotten it already? How could they have rejected God's faithful, loving embrace like this? How could they have forgotten the great faithfulness of our Lord that we sang just a minute ago? Because has He ever forgotten them? Has He given them any reason to treat Him like that? Because you look back, did He not call Abraham from the midst of the Chaldeans to be their great father Abraham? Did He not extend His arm to rescue them from Egypt? Had he not guided David and Solomon's hand to strike fear in the hearts of their enemies? Why would they seek the embrace of any other nation or power, given that God had always embraced and protected them? What good thing had he withheld Or when was a time he ever proved unreliable? Someone once asked. Yet here they are, trusting in themselves, as we saw in the first point, and now distrusting God enough to look for security, protection, and power anywhere else. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine God's people having been preserved by Him through centuries, disregarding Him to the point of acting like a geopolitical prostitute? Well, I'm afraid, I'm afraid the answer is easier and scarier than we would like to admit. In a book about the theme of marital infidelity in the Bible as a metaphor for idolatry, Theologian Ray Ortland asks these questions of us today in light of this text. So I ask them to you. What is a church's proper relationship with worldly political powers? Are we seeking security and safety through the Assyrias, Egypts, and Babylons of modern world? Insulting the power and protection of our husband's all-loving sufficiency? Are we doing that? He goes on, or what is the church's proper relationship with popular consumer culture? At heart, are we gratefully contented with the providences of our husband? Or are we nervously addicted to the material goods of this world? When God shows his people who they truly are, this is what they get. This picture of insult against and distrust of God's good and generous love and providence. And I'm glad that Ray Ortland used, used the expression at heart because this is the last place that we must look today at our final point. 
The truth is, it's all about the heart. That's our last point for tonight. The truth is, it's all about the heart. Verses 30 to 34. Last verses of tonight's section summarize everything we saw with this pointed diagnosis from God in verse 30. How sick is your heart? And then he raises one last irony in this text. Because he says that people in this world who, people who sell what they have for strangers, by definition, they, they sell it. It's a transaction, right? It's a transaction where they receive something in return for what they have to offer. Jerusalem was worse than that. Jerusalem was worse because she paid the strangers to take advantage of her. They were giving away what God had given them in exchange for being made fools at the hands of all kinds of wicked people, and they still wanted more. After centuries of evil, horrifying, disgusting behavior, they had nothing to show for it. Verse 34, you gave payment while no payment was given to you. And they were still, they still wanted more. Friends, this is a very sad story. I think you would agree with me. Our text shows us Jerusalem, as I think of it, the Old Testament prodigal wife. She took everything she said, she had, she took everything she had, went away, and wasted and squandered her riches for nothing in return. And just like another prophet once confronted God's king with a parable only to affirm to him, you are that man, Ezekiel today confronts us with this parable, and it is not lightly that I tell you today, you might be this woman. At heart, as I've said, we all tend to do horrible things described in this text in one way or another. Because at heart we might think we are better than we truly are, so we trust in our own ability and capacity to pull ourselves by the bootstraps. At heart we might distrust God or forget what He has done for us, so then we look for other sources of comfort, of security, of power, always wanting more and always having less. How could they forget what God has done, we ask. And then I ask you, how could you forget what God has done for you? What Ezekiel 16 is doing to us, with all this horrifying, perverse language even, is showing us how our sinful nature, as it is, and its consequences. It starts at the heart, a sick heart, and then it takes over all our actions and our thoughts and emotions. Sin, as I believe you've heard this before, it's not just the things we do, 
But we forget and despise God because of the sin that still clings to our hearts and souls. It comes from the inside. No matter what the appearances look like. The good news, and I wouldn't finish a sermon without some good news after all of this, is that while Ezekiel 16 surprises and horrifies us with sin, God is never taken by surprise. He knows we have a sick heart. And He provides a way to change our hearts that is more than simply telling us to do better, to build another temple, to look better on the exterior. It's more In the cross, says Dr. Ian Duguid, we see sin revealed in its starkest, most abominable ugliness. There, we see God's R-rated answer to our sins. The cost of our salvation was not silver and gold and a new pair of pants, but the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Christ that will wash away our sins. Even those mentioned in this text. It is Christ's blood that washes away the sin even of child sacrifice or whatever we call it these days. If that's your case, you can trust that it's the blood of Christ that washes away all our sins. It is Jesus' Holy Spirit that will cleanse us inside out, giving us a new heart willing to obey. This is why Ezekiel, more than any other Old Testament writer, will talk about how God gives us a new heart. Let me read to you just the most famous passage, the one in chapter 36 where all these themes we have talking come together. He says there, and it's, this is God speaking, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This night, the Spirit of God is reminding us that as bad, as deep, as bloody as our sin can get, His blood covers it all. He runs deeper and wider than our sin. Far as the curse is found, says the old hymn, that's where he loves. His love covers. So as we look our own evil in the face in Ezekiel 16, we are also reminded of how God through Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, give us a new heart. From heaven, he came and sought you 
to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, he bought you. And for your life, he died. So once again, like I did last week, I will plead with you, and I'll keep doing that from Ezekiel 16. The love of your life is calling you. Come and live. Let us pray. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse, we ask, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and magnify your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, and together we say, Amen.